0: or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both, underscore, MOV, number two, L-I-V. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you.
1: After 88 episodes of the FitLab Pittsburgh podcast and 40 episodes of the Moving to Live podcast, we've decided to turn the tables on our host, Ben Reuter, and interview him. So this is a crossover episode for FitLab Pittsburgh and Moving to Live, where we ask some burning questions and find out Ben's answers. So we're going to start with the classic FitLab Pittsburgh question, which is, Ben, are you a Pittsburgh native?
0: I am not a Pittsburgh native. I was born in upstate New York. I lived in western Massachusetts for a while. I went to college in central Pennsylvania in Gettysburg, for those of you who are central Pennsylvania natives. I then went to grad school in Norfolk, Virginia. My whole idea was that I was going to be an athletic trainer at a small college someplace out west in Colorado. I moved my way west from there to Kentucky, and then things took another turn, and I went from Kentucky to Atlanta, to Auburn, Alabama, to Lakeland, Florida, and then I have been here for the last 14 or 15 years just outside of Pittsburgh.
1: Okay, I've moved a lot, but that just made me a little bit dizzy thinking about it. So you've been in Pittsburgh 14 or 15 years. That's given you enough time to explore a little bit. What is your favorite way to move in the Pittsburgh area?
0: My favorite way to move, I would have to say, it's one of two. It's either getting off in the woods, preferably hilly with my dogs, Or if I have more time to go someplace south, maybe Ohio Pile or someplace else where there's some good mountain biking, again, hopefully with hills.
1: Well, if you like hills, Pittsburgh is definitely a good area to live in. Um, So we've we've always tried to get three favorite ways to be active out of you. So we know from many podcasts in the past, you do like to walk, you like to run, you like to mountain bike. Give us something that we don't know that you like to do.
0: I would like to do more of mild whitewater kayaking, and I would like to do more of flatwater kayaking. It's just with the time commitments and life, it's difficult to have the boat loaded up into the Jeep, drive to water, paddle, pack the boat back up, and come home. So I'd like to do more both mild whitewater paddling and flatwater paddling.
1: Of course, you do know that there are companies that will assist you with that, including the concierge kayaking service of Dynamic Paddlers at Larry Joya.
0: Yes, yeah, shout out to Larry. Larry, you are on my list of things to do this summer.
1: And speaking of your list of things to do, what is your bucket list activity? The movement activity that at some point in your life you know you're going to do?
0: I'll put it down as two. One of them, I'm actually starting to take the steps to do it, the other one is going to take a little longer. I would like to go out west in Colorado and do the hut to hut mountain bikes in the San Juan Mountains. I think it's seven or eight days all at elevation, and I think it'd be a blast. The more realistic bucket list to do sooner is I'm going to do a rim-to-rim hike slash run of the Grand Canyon, going from the South Rim to the North Rim. Uh, Talking to everybody for Fitlab Pittsburgh and moving to live kind of motivated me to get that off the ground, and right now I'm in the process of trying to figure out when I can get a reservation on the North Rim since the hotel is only open from May 15th to October 15th. And based on the weather in that area of Arizona, I really don't want to do it other than in the months of May or October because it can be 100 plus degrees down in the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And I really don't want to hike slash run for 20 plus miles in that kind of weather.
1: Can't blame you for that. So we know how you're saying active now. Were you active as a kid growing up?
0: I was forced, and I say this jokingly, to work on my parents' farm. Uh, what it was was it's kind of like when you grow up on a farm, for those of you who have done that, you basically join in. And then I also had the opportunity as I got a little bit older where my father would offer me options to earn a little bit of extra money if I did a little bit extra more. After we got out of the farming business, I continued to stay active as far as my jobs. Even though I was going to college, I worked landscaping, I worked log cabin construction. And I actually was an athletic kid. I started playing Little League baseball. I did not do very well the first year, and I didn't hit the ball. I didn't have a foul ball the entire first year. And sometime between the first and second year, I learned that if I kept my eyes open when I swung the bat, Sometimes I'd make contact with the ball. My favorite sport at that point in time, though, was probably soccer. I'd played pickup soccer and kind of recreational school soccer. And when I got into junior high and there were junior high sports, we still had a farm and my dad said, well, you can pick one sport to play, but it's a big time commitment, so pick one of them. And where my school was, it was soccer, basketball, and baseball. So I picked soccer. And about halfway through the season, because I grew up in a relatively rural area with small schools, my dad said, well, you know, the school probably needs you. The numbers are relatively low. If you want to play basketball, you can play basketball, too. Again, school was relatively small, so I was able to do that. Then partway through the basketball season, he said, you know, a lot of kids may not be playing baseball, so you should probably play baseball, too, to support the school. So I ended up from going thinking in junior high I was going to play one sport to having the opportunity to play, albeit not very well, soccer, basketball, and baseball in high school. And then when I got to college, I wanted to try to continue to play sports. And I like to say that I was not a very good soccer player. For those of you who know anything about college athletics, I was a two-year junior varsity Division III soccer player. But interestingly enough, during that time, even when I wasn't playing soccer, I was active. I played intramural basketball for four years. Looking back, I was actually fortunate enough—not because I was so good, but because the players around me who were so good. My freshman year, my my intramural basketball team used to scrimmage the JV basketball team to give them a little competition. And I usually ran two or three times a week with friends. And I was fortunate enough the second semester of my senior year in college to come visit my parents who at the time lived in Prospect, Pennsylvania. And I picked up my first serious bicycle, which was a th- used $300 stump jumper by Specialized. The interesting thing about that is I rode the heck out of that thing for three or four years. And it was well worn when I got it. And when I sold it, I think I sold it for $250. So for three or four years of use to actually end up only spending $50 on it, plus a a couple of tune-ups was a pretty good deal.
1: That is a good deal, and probably an unusual entry into cycling. And speaking of, cycling can be a little bit intimidating for people who are not currently bike riders. So do you have any advice for someone who wants to get into cycling but who hasn't really made a habit of it at this point in their life?
0: I would say the first thing is to find somebody who can maybe mentor you. There are a lot of bike clubs in Pittsburgh. I know there are a lot of people who do that. Uh, When I first moved to Pittsburgh, I looked at a variety of shops. And just by luck of the draw, one of the first shops I went to was, at that time, it was West Liberty Schwinn. Now it's uh, West Liberty Bikes. They've moved from West Liberty Avenue to Brookline. And I bought my first bike in Pittsburgh there, although I had numerous bikes before then. At one time in grad school, I had 15 bikes in my apartment, which was probably a little bit of overkill. A couple of them weren't mine. But what I found with that bike shop is I've seen a variety of people come in and some bike shops will try to oversell you and I think they'll undersell you, tell you what you need for what you want to do. So find somebody to talk to and go to a bike shop to try to get some feedback from them as far as what you want, where you should ride. I know some of the places like the Wheel Mill in Pittsburgh, we interviewed them in one of our first podcasts. They actually have beginner Bike nights and beginner bike nights, I believe, for women. Uh, I believe I'm probably pronouncing exactly or calling it wrong exactly what they call it. but the wheelmill does a, a great job of that of introducing to people to cycling. And if I remember right from our interview, he talked about uh, possibly maybe teaching somebody who was in their early 80s who'd never ridden before and wanted to ride. So if you're not confident, find somebody who's good at it and you may find out that it's a heck of a lot of fun. The rails to trails to Pittsburgh are vastly underutilized if you want to, don't want to be on the road. And there's quite a few areas around here if you want to try mountain biking also.
1: And always wear a helmet.
0: Yeah, always wear a helmet. Uh, every time that I have crashed seriously, either on a road bike or a mountain bike, believe it or not, I've landed on my head.
1: One might uh, go down a joke road there, but I'm going to restrain myself. So speaking, however, of landing on your head, In all of your outdoor adventures, what is the biggest misadventure that you have had?
0: Uh, I'd say probably there would be two misadventures. One of them resulted in a broken wrist when I was working at a school in Florida. After finishing work for the day, I decided to go on a little mountain bike ride in, in a place that I had mountain biked previously. And as I'm riding along, I notice a little offshoot trail that I hadn't taken before, Not even thinking, I kind of guided my mountain bike that way and suddenly found myself going down a very, very short, very, very steep hill. Henceforth, I went over the handlebars and started sliding down the hill. And I could still remember clearly looking ahead and seeing that I was going to ram my shoulder into a tree and having my background in sports medicine, I thought, I don't want to break a collarbone. So at the time I did what I thought was a smart thing to do. And I slammed my fist into the ground to stop me or slow me down. The good news is I didn't hit the tree. The bad news is I fractured my wrist. (laughs) So I would say that was the first uh, mishap. Maybe the more amusing mishap is when I was in Florida, again, riding with a friend of mine, we were riding on the Suncoast trail. I was riding a fixed gear bike with a track chain and we were about 35 miles from where we started and I broke a chain and learned that the typical chain tool that we carried was not big enough for a track chain to fix it. And I'm wondering what the heck I'm going to do. And my buddy goes, well, I guess I'm pushing you back. Fortunately in Florida, it was pretty flat, but I still remember riding 30, 35 miles. And every few feet I would get shoved in the back to push me ahead and I'd coast along. And when I slowed down, it wasn't fun necessarily, but it was an adventure. And I think my buddy enjoyed it more than I did.
1: Good to know. Lessons from those. Um, I suppose the one where you broke the wrist, maybe that was the best option compared to breaking a collarbone?
0: It was the best option. And I continued to ride in that area. And every time I would ride by this little steep downhill offshoot of a trail, my thought process was, what the fuck was I thinking? Uh, The moral of the story for that is if you're going to mountain bike on technical terrain do it when you can concentrate and not when you'd have a busy day of work and are trying to relax a little bit.
1: Good advice. So those are definitely misadventures. Now, how about the most unusual movement activity that you've tried? We know that's one of your favorite questions to ask FitLab Pittsburgh guests. Now the tables are turned. What is the most unusual activity that you have tried? And would you do it again?
0: I would definitely do it again. If the right option arose, I actually had the opportunity to do this most unusual activity for 10 or 12 years. When I moved to Atlanta, Georgia to work, I was working as an athletic trainer in a sports medicine clinic, which was in the same building as the Georgia games, the Georgia games, for those of you who don't know are an Olympic styled state games where every year they have a state games with a variety of sports for all kinds of people kind of a side note of that, in one of the Georgia Games mountain bike races in the late 90s, I believe, I'm sorry, the mid-90s, I was the 99th place finisher in the Georgia Games mountain bikes in my age group, so I was very highly finished. But what I had the opportunity to do is when I was there for about three months, I was told by my boss that I was going to be the medical person to go on the Georgia Games torch run, which was something that I that was, I believe, about 10 days long, and you ran and biked all over the state of Georgia carrying a torch to raise awareness for the Georgia games. And at the time when I first started doing this, it was 1993 or 1994 when they were leading up to the Atlanta games. So there was a lot of publicity for it. People a lot of times thought we were with the Olympic torch, even though we were a little early. And I remember I was training for an ultra distance triathlon then, and my biggest concern was not being able to bring my bicycle. So I called the guy who was doing the logistics for the trail run, or excuse me, for the torch run and said, hey, I'm training for this race. Can I bring my bike and ride along with you instead of being just a medical person? And Wayne Van Leer's comment at the time was, sure, you can ride as much as you want. You tell me when you don't want to ride. So I started out as a medical person, and then as I progressed, I had the opportunity to work with the logistics. And it was neat from two points of view. First of all, it was really neat to have the opportunity to see different parts of the state of Georgia, literally all the way down south as far as Vidalia, all the way up north to Dalton. And I ran and biked all over the place and had some experiences I'll never forget Two of them that were really, really cool is I had the opportunity to run into and out of Fort Benning with members of the armed services. We ran five miles in with the drill instructor team at the time. And what I thought was incredible about this, for those of you who are familiar with Georgia weather, is it was about 95 degrees and humid, and we were in tank tops and shorts, and the drill instructors were in fatigues, and they ran in with us. And then we had the opportunity to run out with the Army 10-mile team. So that was a really cool experience. Another cool experience I had with that is I had the opportunity during rush hour, the police officer shut down one lane of the bridge going over the causeway to St. Simons Island at 5 o'clock on a Friday, and I got to draft behind the police officer carrying a torch in my bicycle. The torch wasn't lit. So it was a really neat opportunity that lasted anywhere from – seven to 14 days, depending on the year. And I said I did it for uh, 10 or 12 years and had the opportunity to bike all over parts of Georgia and make some really cool friendships and relationships.
1: Very cool, and definitely unusual, an opportunity not to be missed that probably doesn't come up for very many people. So you talked a little bit in your quick bio of how you got to Pittsburgh about your path into your career path. Tell us a little bit about how you went from wanting to be an athletic trainer to becoming a professor.
0: I always thought I wanted to get a doctorate at some point in time, and I got my master's degree at Old Dominion University. And one of the people who was my professor was I had the late Mel Williams as my research professor. And for those of you who don't know, Dr. Williams was one of the first people to really study sports nutrition. Uh, He was one of the founding members of the International uh, Journal of Sports Nutrition. And I got to talk to Dr. Williams. I took a couple of extra classes just because he was such a good professor. And he kind of planted the seed in my mind that, hey, you know, you might want to get a doctorate sometime. And at that point in time, I was about ready to be done with school. I took a job and I worked 48 out of the first 52 weekends in addition to the five days during the work week. And I realized... I don't really like to do this that much. I enjoyed what I was doing, but I didn't really want to work quite that much because I wanted to have a, a little bit of a life. I wanted to move a little bit more. And I also realized with that with what I was doing, if I wanted to make enough money to progress financially, I was going to have to move in management, and I really didn't want to do that. So of course, it seemed like a good idea to stop working and go sixty or $70,000 into debt and go to doctoral studies. I will say at the time, uh, the physician I was working for wanted me to go to physician's assistant school and come back and work for him. And I thought about it, but made the decision, I'm going to get a, a doctoral degree. And that's what kind of started me on the path of academics versus working as an athletic trainer.
1: So looking back, if you were not teaching today, if you were not a professor, what do you think you'd be doing?
0: when i realized i needed to make a career path i actually looked at doing a variety of things i discussed with a friend over the years of possibly opening a fitness facility and that didn't seem right i actually looked at opening uh, some sort of bakery because i thought that would be an interesting thing Um, and when i was beginning to say you know i might want to go back to school one of the things i actually looked at because again i liked the idea of small business is I actually looked at possibly getting a master's degree in brewing. The University of California Davis has a, a well-regarded master's program. And I had seen some articles about people got some pretty good jobs working in microbreweries and I liked beer. And then I looked at the prerequisites and realized that I'd have to go to school for two or three years to get the engineering background that I needed. So that didn't work out. Uh, I think if probably if I wasn't uh, a professor, I'd probably be doing either something in the movement field or some sort of small business in a small mountain town.
1: Doesn't sound like a bad thing. So if you're, if you've got, uh, we have our moving to live listeners here who may be just starting out in their movement or exercise related careers. Um, any advice as someone who's either still in school, thinking about going back to school or just starting out on their career path?
0: It's never bad to say I don't know. And my story for that is I was taking a lactate seminar in my doctoral studies at Auburn University, and Dr. Bruce Gladden, who is world-renowned for his research on lactate, was teaching it. And we're talking about various studies, which are quite difficult that some of us are struggling to understand. And somebody asked Dr. Gladden, well, Dr. Gladden, maybe it would help help us if you could draw a molecule of lactate on the blackboard. And Dr. Gladden goes up, and he starts to write down some chemical symbols, and then he stops, and he goes, you know, let's take a 10-minute break. I don't exactly remember what it is, so I want to refresh my memory before I do it. And at the time, I don't remember anybody thinking, wow, he's an idiot. He doesn't even know what lactate is. It's kind of like, oh. So you don't have to necessarily know everything. You have to have a good understanding and be smart enough to realize it. And he was one of the best professors and smartest professors I ever had. And as I said, nobody looked down at him for saying, I don't really remember
1: Definitely good advice and definitely better than faking it most times when that can definitely come back to bite you in the butt. So a little bit more advice for our listeners. This uh, does cross over, although I'm thinking a little bit more of uh, Pittsburgh. Somebody who knows they should be more active, wants to be more active, is looking to make movement a priority. Any suggestions for how to change your focus to make that a little bit higher on your priority list.
0: If you've listened to our Moving to Live podcast, some of our guests have given some excellent advice. And I can't remember if it's actually on a podcast or chatting before or after recording. I think the first thing is find out what you like to do moving wise. Some people like group exercise classes. Other people uh, like to go out alone or exercise in groups of two or three. So I think my number one thought would be find something that you like to do, because we'd all like to have somebody do cardiovascular resistance training, flexibility training, maybe a little uh, meditation for the mind. But first of all, do something that you like to do. Second of all, make it a priority. So schedule it into your day. If you're using Outlook or you're using uh, a calendar program on, on your smartphone, program it into your day and figure out when are you most likely to do it. For example, for me, I'm most likely to exercise if I do it in the early morning. I learned very early before I went back to school that if I waited till the afternoon, all kinds of excuses not to go out the door at 5 or 5.30. And definitely, if I made it home from work without working out, I wasn't going to work out. So find out when you're going to work out best and schedule that in. Uh, I actually found during doctoral studies when times were busy, sometimes I worked out at 4.30 in the morning. And you may think, wow, that's horrible. But if you were going to school in Auburn, Alabama in the middle of summer, 4.30 4.30 in the morning was about as cool as it got, and it was nice and quiet, and you can get out and run on the streets of Auburn, Alabama, and it was really relaxing. And then the final thing I'd say is if you're not sure what you're doing or you're having trouble keeping your schedule, hire a trainer or a coach to keep yourself accountable. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't know what you're doing. We interviewed Dr. Stacy Sims for Moving to Live a few weeks back and I don't remember if this was on the recording or not, but I know Dr. Sims is preparing for an event that she hasn't done before. And I think she wants to do a little better than she's done in the past. And she said she was she hired a coach. By the same token, when I did my first Ironman, I was a doctoral student in exercise physiology. I was had a couple of people that I was training and I hired a guy out there named Jay Marshall to train me for my first Ironman. And I think I paid $100 a month at the time uh, he was in Atlanta, I was in Auburn, but it probably is the best money that I spent because otherwise I think I would have gotten to the starting line vastly overtrained. So, I guess to summarize it, find something you like, hold yourself accountable, or hire somebody to hold yourself accountable, and just make it a regular part of your life. I know when I started my doctoral studies, Dr. Jeff Chandler told my advisor that my attitude was better when I worked out on a regular basis. So if I was a jerk, tell me to go out and go for a bike ride or a run. And looking back, that's probably true. The more active I am, the happier I am.
1: Good advice. And I feel the same way. And I have lived in both Phoenix, Arizona and Fort Lauderdale, Florida and early morning workouts. Definitely a good thing, um, especially in those summer hot seasons. Okay, a couple last questions before we let you get on with your Saturday. Um, What is your current go-to for a quick breakfast if you need a little bit of food before you head out for that early morning workout?
0: I am a smoothie aficionado. I have a Vitamix that I purchased at the American College of Sports Medicine meeting in Denver, and I believe June of 1988 I'm sorry, 1998.
1: You're dating yourself?
0: It might be 1999. It was one of the, whenever uh, ACSM was in Denver, they had a demo booth there, and I asked them if they had any demos for sale, and they did, so I got a good deal on it. I slung it over my shoulder and walked down the street of Denver and mailed it uh, back to Auburn, Alabama from from the post office. And what I like to do with a smoothie is some sort of fresh fruit. Uh a cup of some of some sort of liquid i wish i could say it was milk but a lot of times if i have milk in the early morning it upsets my stomach yogurt and some protein powder and if i'm feeling really adventuresome maybe i'll throw in some peanut butter powder so it gives me some good protein gives me a little bit of fat gives me some carbohydrates and it doesn't take more than about four or five minutes to eat so there's no excuse for me not to eat breakfast I will say I'm a big breakfast person. If I could have pancakes, waffles, and things like that for breakfast every day, I would. But I found if I do that, my energy level at about 10 o'clock in the morning tanks. So I try to stay away from that.
1: And would you like to share your other go-to morning activity, which is espresso?
0: Well, that's that's part of my morning ritual. So I think it's important to have rituals or things that make you happy. And probably nine or 10 years ago, I realized I was spending a lot of money at various coffee places. So I started pricing espresso machines and I have to confess, I have a pretty good espresso machine, a pretty good grinder, a couple of manual espresso machines, and then I have a backup electric espresso machine in case one of them's in the shop. But I like the smell of the espresso. I like the taste of it. And I'd almost say that if I had a choice between dessert and having a shot of espresso, I'd probably take that.
1: Not a bad thing. Okay, we're about ready to wrap up. Is there anything else you would like to say to either of our sets of audiences before we let you go?
0: Uh, Either of our sets of audiences, give our podcasts a listen. If you've got any ideas for guest suggestions for FitLab Pittsburgh, we want people who are movers or make movement a priority. They don't necessarily have to be in the movement business. Drop us a, a line. We have contact information in the show notes and let us know who you think would be a good interview and why. Sometimes we can't get to it, but we are rolling out fairly shortly something called a FitLab Pittsburgh Features, where we're going to, once a week, kind of highlight on our website somebody in Pittsburgh who moves, but has them answer questions, kind of like our version of Next Up Pittsburgh, where they interviewed various interesting people. For the Moving to Live people, uh, I'd say give us a listen. I have a couple of clocks that go off periodically. So for for the Moving to Live people, again, I'd say give us a listen. What we've tried to avoid doing is what Dean Somerset, one of our interviews, calls knowledge silos or what Dr. Gary Chime's partner calls medical islands where people tend to get information just from people they are familiar with. So the personal trainers kind of talk to the personal trainers. The general practice doctors talk to the general practice doctors. The physical therapists talk to the physical therapists, and so on and so forth. And what we're trying to do, and I think so far in our, did you say 40 episodes?
1: 40 episodes.
0: 40 episodes, 20 guests, is we've got a wide variety of people, all of whom make movement a priority or understand that movement is probably one of the best, if not the best drugs out there. And by listening to us, you can kind of hopefully pick up some ideas or thoughts of, oh, I hadn't thought of that, or I want to explore that further. So if you've got ideas for moving to live guests, again, we do podcasts just about every week. We take a couple weeks here and there off through the year, but give us some ideas. We'd love to contact you. If you're going to be at the uh, NSCA, National Strength and Conditioning Association meeting coming up in July, look us up. We'll probably have some sort of FitLab Pittsburgh or moving to live gear or hat or stickers. And we'd love to talk to you and we'd love to get your ideas for somebody who might like make a good interview.
1: Excellent. Thank you very much. So regular FitLab Pittsburgh people, give our sister podcast, Moving to Live a Listen interesting stories about how people got where they are in their careers and interesting advice for both professionals and amateur aficionados and if you are looking to get more active and try new movement activities go back through the Fitlab pittsburgh archives we have talked to a lot of people moving in pittsburgh in a lot of interesting ways and their stories are out there for you to consider maybe you'll find your new favorite thing So thanks, Ben, for taking time on a Saturday afternoon to have the mic aimed at you instead of being the interviewer.
0: I think I enjoy doing the interviewing more than being the interviewee, but thanks for doing this. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both, underscore, mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.